The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. I've always liked to live in a part of the country where there's a sense of the seasons. I suppose part of that comes from the fact that I grew up in South Dakota where we very definitely have seasons. But I'm sure that those of you who have grown up here in New England probably have that same sense of how wonderful it is to feel that movement from summer to fall and then to winter and then to spring. And I especially love those seasons of spring and fall because they say to me that we're about to have something wonderful happen in the spring and then in the fall. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> I'm sure that also some of you have lived in climates that were uh, very moderate, where there was very little change in the seasons. We lived for a while in Southern California, and I remember that there literally were times when I would have to stop and think, what month is it, as I was writing the date? It is hard when you live in places like that to have that sense of movement. I grew up in a denomination of the Christian church, the Methodist church, that did not have much of a sense of liturgical seasons. In fact, in the little uh, country church that we grew up in, Lou and I, there really were probably only three seasons of the church year. There was Christmas, Easter, and all the other Sundays. <laughs> I'm sure that the Methodist church has changed some, like so many of the Protestant churches, reclaiming a sense of the, of the liturgical year and living into that. So there is a sense of movement. So we have a sense that we live in this great cycle of the Christian faith. I think uh, we need to have that in the background as we think about the gospel lesson for today, because I believe this lesson is given to us as a way of preparation. It is a little bit like the frost that comes in November. It's a reminder that we're coming to something new. Something is going to be different. This is a preparation for the time of preparation. 
That's what I think this lesson in the gospel today and the next two lessons from the gospels are about. They're lessons of judgment, calling us to examine our lives, to prepare, to prepare for the one who is to come. The parable in today's gospel is is, uh, sometimes called the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And the story is set in the context of a first century wedding, uh, wedding feast. The, the scholars don't know an awful lot about first century weddings, weddings that occurred at the time of Jesus. There, there are texts that precede that time, and then there are documents that give some hint of what happened in later times, after the first century. So they've had to interpolate a bit uh, what actually might have happened at a wedding feast. As best we can understand, a betrothal or an engagement occurred about a year ahead of time, and it was a legal binding of the two together. But it wasn't yet the marriage, and the marriage would come this year later, and perhaps part of the reason for that was in order for the families to prepare, especially the family of the bride who probably had to offer some sort of dowry, but also just to have all of the resources together necessary to have this great feast that was bound to happen. And, of course, we know about those feasts in part because of the account of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, where there were endless amounts of wine, and one can imagine the food was also wonderful, and it went on for days. These were real parties. They enjoyed their weddings. The wedding also might have been an event that started at the bride's home. The bridegroom would go there and receive the blessing of the bride's, uh, of the bride's parents, Then the bride and the bridegroom would come out of the house. The wedding party would join them, the bridesmaids with their lamps, going from the bride's home, processing through the town. You can imagine in some of these small villages what a procession that must have been as they went to the bridegroom's home. And there they would gather, and then there would be this great celebration. Well, I think that is the context of what we have in this parable today, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Now, one can imagine as well, these. this is a difficult parable. In fact, I mentioned uh, at the earlier service, it's one of the few times when I've been at convention, we were at convention yesterday, when not one, but three clergy asked me, are you preaching Sunday? (laughs) Because this is probably our least favorite parable to preach from. It's hard to find good news in it, but I'm going to try. (laughs) We have to imagine these ten bridesmaids coming for this wedding and waiting for the bridegroom to emerge from the bride's house. And it's a little unclear from the parable whether they came with no oil, five of them, or if they all came with oil, but five of them ran out. And I think that's probably more likely. Uh, As they waited for the bride and the bridegroom to emerge from the house, it became much later. So you can imagine they burned those lamps, and eventually five of them ran out of oil. And they said to the other five, will you share your oil with us? That seems like a good Christian thing to do. And, of course, the answer was, no, you go buy your own oil. (laughs) That's one of the hard parts in this parable. (laughs) So they go off to buy more oil so they can come back and be a part of the procession. And while they're gone, of course, Murphy's Law being what it is, if anything can go wrong, will. And it will go wrong at the worst possible time. Sure enough, the procession had gone on without them. And they go then to the house of the bridegroom. 
And they knock at the door and they say, please let us in. Let us be a part of the banquet. After all, we know you. We are friends of the bride. Let us in. And the bridegroom responds, go away. I don't know you. Well, that's pretty harsh. It's pretty hard for us, I think, to hear in this parable the voice of Jesus loving, speaking to us. So I think we need to go deeper and go beyond this a bit and see what it could possibly be that Jesus was trying to tell his followers as he gave them this parable. This parable sounds terribly unfair, and it sounds not much like the Christian gospel, the good news that we so often come here hoping to hear. But I think there are some things that Jesus has for us in it. First of all, by way of of, uh, perhaps some um, explanation as to why this particular parable and why it may sound so strange to us, there there are those who think that perhaps this was not one of Jesus' parables. There are others who say, well, yes, it it sounds like something Jesus could have said. But I think it's also important for us to uh, put it in its context that for the community in Matthew's time, in the, uh, the, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, he was perhaps responding to a situation that may have been very prevalent in the early church. As you heard in that reading from Thessalonians and in other places, it was pretty clear that the people were expecting Jesus to return in their lifetime. They expected Jesus to come back while they were living. So the issue was, what happens to those who have died and will we be with Jesus before they are? How is all that going to work out? And then you can imagine that as time went on, they became less passionate about the idea of waiting. And so perhaps part of what the writer of Matthew is trying to say is that this waiting is really important. It's a time that must be spent carefully. And it's a time that requires a certain kind of preparation. There's special doing that must be a part of this waiting that we are in. So I think that helps in some way for me to understand why it might have been heard and presented in such a harsh way. As As a bleak reminder that this is important, that we wait properly. As I think about our own waiting, there are two kinds of waiting that I want to put before you. One is the kind of waiting that occurs when I am leaving a meeting at the diocese. It's late in the afternoon. I'm standing at the Park Street T, and I'm frustrated because there's no, there's no train coming. That's a kind of waiting that's not very much fun. And it seems sort of purposeless at times. But then there's the other kind of waiting that I think is best uh, embl- uh, exemplified by a pregnant woman who is waiting for the birth of her child. Because during that time of pregnancy, there's, there's a compulsion to get everything in order, to do all the things that need to be done as she waits for the birth of her child. Both of those are times of waiting. But the kind of waiting that a mother engages in as she is pregnant, waiting for birth, is the kind of waiting that I think the writer of Matthew wanted the followers of Jesus to have as a part of their understanding of what it was to wait. There's another aspect of that waiting. The mother does something. It isn't just a matter of waiting like I wait for the tea. She's waiting for something that's really marvelous that's going to happen. But it requires that she do something. 
I think part of the warning that we have in this gospel is that the grace that God gives to us is not cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer said. It is not cheap. It requires a response from us. And the response from us is not a part of our doing in order to be acceptable to God. But our response is a response out of love and in anticipation of God and of God's love returned to us. As one theologian has put it, even faith is something that must somehow, somewhere be done. Who we are is expressed in how we live. What we believe is expressed in how we live the life of faith. I think that's another expression that can possibly come from this very difficult parable. That it really matters what we do. That we should not be lazy as Christians, but rather we should take our faith seriously. That we should be like that expectant mother who prepares, who is very consciously, actively involved and hoping and waiting for what is to come. So as we wait, as we draw closer to this season of preparation for the coming of the Christ, let us remember that part of our waiting involves doing. But let us also remember that we are people of the light. And that the bridegroom simply asks us, keep your light burning. Let the world know that you are waiting expectantly for the coming of the Christ. Amen.